Section 18 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825 to 1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manik Dubaishu, Portugal. Chapter 20 the Inner Life of Russian Jewry During the Reign of Alexander II, Part 3 6. The Harbinger of Jewish Nationalism, Perez Smolenskin The artistic portrayal of life was, however, a rare exception in the literature of the Haskalah. Riven by social and cultural strife, the period of enlightenment called rather for theories than for art, and the novelist, no less than the publicist, was called upon to supply the want. This theoretic element was paramount in the novels of Peretz Smolenskin, 1842-1885, the editor of the popular Hebrew magazine Ha-Shahar. The pupil of a white Russian yeshiva, he afterwards drifted into frivolous Odessa and till later to Vienna, suffering painfully from the shock of the contrast. Personally, he had emerged unscathed from this conflict of ideas. But round about him, he witnessed the dead bodies of enlightenment, which are just as numerous as the victims of ignorance. He saw the Jewish youth fleeing from its people and forgetting its national language. He saw reform Judaism of Western Europe, which had retained nothing of Jewish culture except the modernized superficialities of synagogue. Repelled by this spectacle, Smolenskin decided from the very beginning to fight on two fronts, against the fanatics of orthodoxy in the name of European progress and against the champions of assimilation in the name of national Jewish culture, and more particularly of the Hebrew language. You say, Smolenskin exclaims, addressing himself to the assimilators, let us be like the other nations. Well and good, let us indeed be like the other nations, cultured men and women, free from superstition, loyal citizens of the country. But let us also remember, as the other nations do, that we have no right to be ashamed of our origin, that it is our duty to hold dear our national language and our national dignity. In his first great novel, A Rover on Life's Path, Hatto'e Bedrake Hahahim, 1869-1876, Smolenskin carries his hero through all the stages of cultural development, leading from an obscure white Russian hamlet the centers of European civilization in London and Paris. But at the end of his rovings, the hero ultimately attains a synthesis of Jewish nationalism and European progress and ends by sacrificing his life while defending his brethren during the Odessa pogrom of 1871. The other tendence novels of Smolenskin reflect the same double-fronted struggle against the stagnation of the Orthodox, particularly the Hasidim, and against the disloyalty of the enlightened. 
Smolensky's theory of Judaism is formulated in two publicistic works, The Eternal People, Amolam, 1872, and There is a Time to Plant, Elataad, 1875-1877. As a counterbalance to the artificial religious reforms of the West, he sets up the far-reaching principle of Jewish evolution of a gradual amalgamation of the national and humanitarian elements within Judaism. The Messianic dogma, which the Jews of the West had completely abandoned because of its alleged incompatibility with Jewish citizenship in the diaspora, is warmly defended by Smolenskin as one of the symbols of national unity. In the very center of his system stands the cult of Hebrew as a national language, without which there is no Judaism. In order the more successfully to demolish the idea of assimilation, Smolenskin bombards its structure, the theory of enlightenment as formulated by Moses Mendelssohn, with its definition of the Jews as a religious community and not as a nation, though in his polemic ardor he often goes too far and does occasional violence to historic truth. In both works, one may discern, though in vague outlines only, the theory of a spiritual nation. However, Smolenskin did not succeed in developing and consolidating his theory. The pogroms of 1881 and the beginning of the Jewish exodus from Russia upset his equilibrium once more. He laid aside the question of the national development of Jewry in the diaspora and became an enthusiastic preacher of the restoration of the Jewish people in Palestine. In the midst of this propaganda, the life of the talented publicist was cut short by a premature death. The same conviction was finally reached after a prolonged inner struggle by Moses' life Lillian Bloom, 1843-1910, who might well be called a martyr of enlightenment. However, during the period under consideration, he moved entirely within the boundaries of the Haskalah, of which he was a most radical exponent. Persecuted for his harmless liberalism by the fanatics of his native town of Vilkomir, Lillian Bloom began to ponder over the question of Jewish religious reforms. In advocating the reform of Judaism, he was not actuated, as were so many in Western Europe, by the desire of adapting Judaism to the non-Jewish environment, but rather by the profound and painful conviction that dominant rabbinism in its medieval phase does not represent the true essence of Judaism. Reform of Judaism, as interpreted by Lillian Blum, does not mean a revolution, but an evolution of Judaism. Just as the Talmud had once reformed Judaism in accordance with the requirement of its time, so must Judaism be reformed by us in accordance with the demands of our own times. When the youthful writer embodied these views in a series of articles published in the Ha Melitz, under the title Orhat HaTalmud, The Ways of the Talmud, 1868-1869, to 1869, 
his orthodox townsmen were so thoroughly aroused that his further stay in Vilkomir was not free from danger, and he was compelled to remove to Odessa. Here he published in 1870 his rhymed satire, Kehal Refaim, in which the dark shadows of a Jewish town, the Kahal elders, the rabbis, the tzaddiks, and other worthies move weirdly about in the gloom of the nether world. In Odessa, Lillian Blum joined the ranks of the Russified college Jews and became imbued with the radical ideas of Chernyshevsky and Pizaryev, gaining the reputation of a nihilist. His theory of Jewish reform, superannuated by his new materialistic worldview, was thrown aside and a gaping void opened in the soul of the writer. This frame of mind is reflected in Lillian Bloom's self-revelation, The Sins of Youth, Hatot Nerium, 1876. This agonizing cry of one of the many victims of the mental cataclysm of the 60s. The book made a tremendous impression, for the mental torture depicted in it were typical of the whole age of transition. However, the final note of the confession, the shriek of a wasted soul, which, having overthrown the old idols, has failed to find a new God, did not express the general trend of that period, which was far from despair. As for our author, his tempestuous soul was soon set at rest. The events which filled the minds of progressive Jewry with agitation, the horrors of the pogroms and the political oppression of the beginning of the 80s brought peace to the aching heart of Lillian Blum. He found the solution of the Jewish problems in the love of Zion, of which he became the philosophic exponent. At a later stage, he became an ardent champion of political Zionism. 7. Jewish Literature in the Russian Language The left wing of Enlightenment was represented during this period by Jewish literature in the Russian language, which had several noteworthy exponents. It is interesting to observe that, whereas all the prominent writers in Hebrew were children of profoundly nationalistic Lithuania, those that wrote in Russian, with the sole exception of Levanda, were natives of South Russia, where the two extremes, stagnant Hasidism and radical Russification, fought for supremacy. The founder of this branch of Jewish literature was Osip Joseph Ravinovich, 1817-1869, a southerner, a native of Poltava, and the resident of Odessa. Alongside of journalistic articles, he wrote protracted novels. His touching pictures of the past, his stories, The Penal Recruits and the Inherited Candlestick, 1859-1860, called up before the generation, living at the dawn of the new era of reforms, the shadows of the passing night the tortures of Nicholas' conscription, and the degrading forms of Jewish rightlessness. The fight against the rightlessness was the goal of his journalistic activity, which, 
prior to the publication of the Raziyet, he had carried on in the columns of the liberal Russian press. The problems of inner Jewish life had but little attraction for him. Like Risa, he looked upon civil emancipation as a panacea for all Jewish ailments. He was snatched away by death before he could be cured of this illusion. Rabinovich's work was continued by a talented youth, the journalist Ilya Elias Orshansky of Yekaterinoslav, 1846-1875, who was the main contributor to the Dien of Odessa and to the Yevreskaya Bibliotheka. To fight for Jewish rights, not to offer humble apologies, to demand emancipation, not to beg for it, this attitude lends a charm of its own to Orshansky's writings. His brilliant analysis of Russian legislation concerning the Jews offers a complete anatomy of Jewish disfranchisement in Russia, beginning with Catherine II and ending with Alexander II. Nevertheless, being a child of his age, he preached its formula. While a passionate Jew at heart, he championed the cause of Russification, though not in the extreme form of spiritual self-effacement. The Odessa pogrom of 1871 staggered his impressionable soul. He was tossing about restlessly, seeking an outlet for his resentment, but everywhere he knocked his head against the barriers of censorship and police. Had he been granted longer life, he might, like Smolenskin, have chosen the road of a nationalistic progressive synthesis, but the white plague carried him off in his 29th year. The literary work of Lev, Leon Levanda, 1835-1888, was of a more complicated character. A graduate of one of the official rabbinical schools, he was first active as teacher in a Jewish crown school in Minsk and afterwards occupied the post of one learned Jew under Muraviyov, the governor-general of Vilna. He thus moved in the hotbed of official enlightenment and in the headquarters of the policy of Russification, as represented by Muraviyov, a circumstance which left its impress upon all the products of his pen. In his first novel, The Grocery Store, 1860, of little merit from the artistic point of view, he still appears as the naive bard of that shallow enlightenment, the champion of which is sufficiently characterized by wearing a European costume, calling himself by a well-sounded German or Russian name. In the novel under discussion, the hero goes by the name of Arnold. Cultivating friendly relations with the noble-minded Christians and making a love match unassisted by the marriage broker. During this stage of his career, Levanda was convinced that no educated Jew could help being a cosmopolitan. But a little later, his cosmopolitanism displayed a distinct propensity toward Russification. In his novel A Hot Time, 1871 to 1872, 
Levanta renounces his former Polish sympathies and, through the mouth of his hero Sarin, preaches the gospel of the approaching cultural fusion between the Jews and the Russians, which is to mark a new epoch in the history of the Jewish people. Old-fashioned Jewish life is cleverly ridiculed in the sketches of the past, the earlocks of my Melabet, Schulophobia, etc., 1870-1875. His peace of mind was not even disturbed by the manifestation towards the end of the 60s of the anti-Semitic reaction in those very official circles in which the learned Jew moved and in which Brafman was looked up to as an authority in matters pertaining to Judaism. But the catastrophe of 1881 dealt a staggering blow to Levanda's soul and forced him to overthrow his former idol of assimilation. With his mind not yet fully settled on the new theory of nationalism, he joined the Palestine movement toward the end of his life and went down to his grave with a clouded soul. One who stuck fast in his denial of Judaism was Grigory Bogrov, 1825-1885. The descendant of a family of rabbis in Poltava, he passed from darkness to light by way of the curious educational institution of Nicholas Brandt, the office of an excise farmer in which he was employed for a number of years. The enlightened Aksinik became conscious of his literary talent late in his life. His protracted memoirs of a Jew, largely made up of autobiographical material, was published in a Russian magazine as late as 1871-1873. They contain an acrimonious description of Jewish life in the time of Nicholas I. No Jewish artist had ever yet dipped his brush in colors so dismal and had displayed so ferocious a hatred as did Bogorov in painting the old Jewish mode of life within the pale, with its poverty and darkness, its hunters and victims, its demoralized car rule of the days of conscription. Bogorov's account of his childhood and youth is not relieved by a single cheerful reminiscence except that of a young Russian girl. The whole patriarchal life of Jewish townlet of that period is transformed into a sort of inferno teeming with criminals or idiots. To the mind of Bogorov, only two ways promised an escape from this hell the way of cosmopolitanism and rationalism, opening up into humanity at large, or the way leading into the midst of the Russian nation. Bogrov himself stood irresolute on this fateful borderline. In 1879, he wrote to Levanda that, as an emancipated cosmopolitan, he would long ago have crossed over to the opposite shore where other sympathies and ideas smiled upon him, were he not kept within the Jewish fold by four million people innocently suffering from systematic persecutions. Bogrov's hatred of the persecutors of the Jewish people was poured forth in his history novel, A Jewish Manuscript, 1876, 
the plot of which is based on events of the time of Khmelnytsky. But even here, while describing, as he himself puts it, the history of the struggle between the spider and the fly, he finds in the life of the fly nothing worthy of sympathy except its sufferings. In 1879, Bogrov began a new novel, The Scum of the Age, picturing the life of the modern Jewish youth who were engulfed in the Russian revolutionary propaganda. But the hand which knew how to portray the horrors of the old conscription was powerless to reproduce, except in very crude outlines, the world of political passions which was foreign to the author, and the novel remained unfinished. The reaction of the 80s produced no change in Bogrov's attitude. He breathed his last in a distant Russian village and was buried in a Russian cemetery, having embraced Christianity shortly before his death as a result of a sad concatenation of family circumstances. Before the young generation, which entered upon active life in the 80s, lay the broken tablets of Russian Jewish literature. New tablets were needed partly to restore the commandment of the preceding period of enlightenment, partly to correct its mistakes. End of section 18